Hello and welcome back to Millennial Myths. I'm Samantha Rank, an intern here at the Heritage Foundation. Over the next few weeks, I'll be debunking some of the most common myths in today's political scene, from Medicare for All to the gender wage gap. Today's topic is identity politics. Identity politics categorizes people based on their race, gender, sexual identity, and other identity labels. But if unity is the goal, this seems counterproductive. Is defining people by their differences really the best way to unite a country that's already divided? A couple months ago, Stacey Abrams, who ran unsuccessfully for governor of Georgia last year, touted identity politics, saying it helped Democrats to victory in 2018. Here's what she said at the CAP Ideas Conference. I would argue that identity politics is exactly who we are, and it's exactly how we won. Stacey Abrams clearly believes in defining Americans by their gender, race, and other group identities. But how do ordinary Americans feel about that? I recently walked around Washington, D.C. to ask people how they would like to be seen, and if identity politics is uniting or dividing. Let's take a listen. Do you think politicians should appeal to us as subgroups, such as by race, gender, etc., or simply as Americans? I think they should talk to us simply as Americans and as individuals. I prefer to be addressed as an American. I'm the same way. I prefer to be uh, addressed as an American. I would say simply as Americans. I think representatives um, or people who are running for office should represent the people who um, are their constituents, regardless of like who they are. Um, it can be like a mix of people. I don't think they should just represent one group of people, as long as like they're like they're being elected in office to represent like the interests of those who they govern. So I think they should have those people in mind. Second question, do you think it's harmful or helpful to our nation to treat people in subgroups rather than a unified America? Definitely very harmful. I think if we like treat people so differently based on like who, like who they are, I think it's like gen- very like generalizing and I think that's um, that can be very harmful to um, us as people because it actually divides us even more based on like here look at these differences they actually exist rather than just like addressing us as people. Well, I think it's important to recognize that we all are different but and that's important to acknowledge but uh, that shouldn't change one's perception on anyone as an American. I think it does more harm than good. I think it creates rifts and uh, divides society in ways that it doesn't need to be. In the same way that uh, Voting for different football teams unites people, it unites people, but last time I checked, if you're a fan of the Patriots, it's very hard for you to get along with someone who's a fan of the Buffalo Bills. Before we dissect these answers further and discuss identity politics more, we're going to take a quick break. But stay close because when we return, David Azarad of the Heritage Foundation will be in studio. Americans have almost entirely forgotten their history. That's right, and if we want to keep our republic, this needs to change. I'm Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. We host The Right Side of History, a podcast dedicated to restoring informed patriotism and busting the negative narratives about America's past. Hollywood, the media, and academia have failed a generation. We're here to set the record straight on the ideas and people who've made this country great. Subscribe to The Right Side of History on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher today. Now in the studio with me is David Azarad. David is the director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks for being with me today. Thanks for having me on. Earlier in the podcast, we heard Stacey Abrams credit identity politics for Democrat success in 2018. 
Of course, she didn't invent identity politics. So how did this concept come about? And when did it really start to gain momentum in America? I think one thing we've seen over the past several decades, it it begins in the late 60s, early 70s. Its roots, I think, are found in the black power and black nationalist movements. So the radical alternatives to the civil rights movement on the one hand, and then radical second wave feminism. Uh, And hence the current obsession primarily with race and sex. I mean, sexual orientation and gender identity are ancillary categories. I mean, really the heart and soul of identity politics are uh, what we now call people of color uh, and women. And it gradually colonizes the Democratic Party and takes over to the point where today the Democratic Party is primarily about catering to the interests of aggrieved identity groups. And it no longer is what it was earlier in the 20th century, which was the party of the working class, of the middle class, of the poor, regardless of their skin color or ethnicity or sex or sexual orientation or you name it. So the the person who kind of represents what the Democratic Party used to be is Bernie Sanders. And it's interesting to note that he is not a Democrat. He's an independent. He speaks for kind of the traditional class-based progressive redistributionist progressivism that, you know, we're for all the poor, all the working class, all the workers, regardless of their skin color. The Democratic Party has largely moved beyond that, regrettably. In a paper you authored for the Heritage Foundation titled The Promises and Perils of Identity Politics, you wrote, quote, contrary to what the term would seem to indicate, identity politics is first and foremost a politics not of identity, but of oppression. Can you explain what you meant by that? Well, I'm glad you read my paper and you kind of picked up on, I I think that's the key insight, is to understand that um, it's primarily a politics of oppression, not identity. And what this means is that not all identities are created equal. I mean, this is really the key thing to understand about identity politics. Not everyone is entitled to have an identity that they're proud of. It goes without saying that if you're white, if you're male, if you're straight, if you're a Christian, these are not identities that you're allowed to be proud of. You only get to celebrate your identity if you belong to a recognized oppressed identity group as defined by the left. You know, the definitions are interesting. I mean, Mormons have been horrendously treated, mistreated throughout American history, and yet they're not entitled to be a privileged, recognized identity group. And so it's not just that identity politics encourages us to withdraw into our bubbles as we define our identities, is that it also splits the country into two camps, kind of the coalition of the aggrieved, oppressed identity groups. And then on the other side, the so-called oppressors and the bad identities. And that's just a very, very bad recipe to have. Forget about even civic friendship, just to have a functioning country that we seem to be actively fanning the flames of tribalism encourages us to have a confrontational approach to one another. And unlike class-based politics, you can't overcome that. You don't move from one class to another and you immediately see which identity a person has. And, and it just, it's, let me put it to you this way. It's completely incompatible with the idea of having a country, of having some sort of a coherent unity that of course can accommodate diversity and difference, but that at least presupposes that there's something that unites us all together. Identity politics denies that. 
Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, quote, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. How do you think Martin Luther King Jr. would respond to identity politics? You know, we, it's hard to tell. Uh, I, I can't read his mind, but, you know, he lived long enough to see the rise of black power, the Stokely Carmichael's movement. He knew of Malcolm X, and he was very critical of what they stood for, which is he preached reconciliation and forgiveness. They didn't. He preached assimilation, civic friendship, and brotherhood. They preached separatism. Um, he, by and large, rejected the idea of preferential treatment based on race. They did not. So... Uh, one thing that everyone should know, especially your audience of millennials, is that the identitarians on the left like to invoke MLK as one of their own, when in fact he was not practicing identity politics. Identity politics is about indicting America, separating culturally from the rest of the country, and demanding special treatment. These are not things that MLK stood for. The I have a dream speech, you know, arguably the greatest American speech given in the 20th century. It's a dream quote anchored in the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. It's a dream that promises brotherhood. I mean, he goes beyond civic friendship and promises brotherhood. That is most emphatically not what identity politics is about today. It's about saying, goddamn America, America is irredeemably and fundamentally sexist, racist, homophobic, and therefore unworthy of any attachment. And it's about fighting for the slice of the pie for my aggrieved identity group and to hell with the rest of the country. What's the danger of dividing people into subgroups and how can we move away from identity politics? Look, one thing we need to understand is that it's perfectly natural and normal for people to divide into subgroups. I, I have no problem with Nicaraguan identity, with black identity. I mean, people want to live amongst their own. There are subcultures. This is a vast, vast country. It spans a continent. There are 330 million people who live here last time I checked. Surely we're not going to expect everyone to have the same national identity at all levels and to not have a certain, you know, sub-national tribal pull. In a free country, people can live with whom they want and think how they want. What worries me is that when we practice politics, we should be cutting against the grain of tribalism and reminding Americans that we're all Americans and emphasizing the common ties that bind us together as a nation, speak of civic friendship. The differences will happen naturally. What we're doing is encouraging the differences, and that's very different. That, that's very dangerous. So the point is not to eliminate them. People will always have their subgroup identities. That's just human nature. But we need to have a responsible public rhetoric in the public square that hammers away at the idea, that reminds people that, okay, hey, you may live in your neighborhood with people who look like you and think like you and worship the same God you do, but remember that you're also an American, and that we're all in this together. And I just don't see enough of that in the public square today, and that's what worries me. So what I would want from intellectuals, from uh, people who shape the culture, from politicians, is to just emphasize our common American ties. And the, uh, the subgroup identities will take care of themselves. They'll happen on their own. Well, that just about wraps up this week's episode of Millennial Myths. David, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss identity politics. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic, you can find more content at heritage.org. 
Be sure to tune in next week as we discuss the gender wage gap. Have a great week. Millennial Myths is executive produced by Samantha Rank. Script edited by Lauren Evans and Daniel Davis. Sound design by Samantha Rank. For more information, visit heritage.org.